Chapter One of Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Seven, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter One: The Enrollment and the Draft. The successive steps by which the Army of the United States, numbering some 17,000 men when Mr. Lincoln was inaugurated, grew to the vast aggregate of a million soldiers, deserve a word of notice. We can do no more than to summarize briefly the process, referring those of our readers who may wish to study the matter in more detail to the admirable historical statement of General James B. Fry, appended to the report of the Secretary of War to the 39th Congress. The first troops mustered into the service were the militia of the District of Columbia. Thirty-eight companies were thus obtained. On the 15th of April was issued, under the law of 1795, the President's proclamation calling for 75,000 troops for 90 days. Their work was the protection of the capital. Their service mainly ended with the First Battle of Bull Run. On the 3rd of May, the President issued a call for 42,000 volunteers to serve three years, unless sooner discharged. He increased at the same time the regular army by eight regiments, and directed the enlistment of 18,000 seamen. This was done without authority from Congress, but the act was legalized when that body came together. The volunteers called for were immediately raised, and many more were offered, but the recruits for the regular army came in slowly, and the new regiments were in fact never fully organized until the close of the war. After the disastrous Battle of Bull Run, the patriotism of Congress promptly rose to the emergency, and within a few days successive acts were passed, giving the President authority to raise an army of a million men. So enthusiastic was the response of the people in those early days that the chief embarrassment of the government at first was to check and repress the offers of volunteers. Some regions were more liberal in their tenders of troops than others. Individuals and companies rejected from one state whose quota was full enlisted from another. Pious frauds were practiced to get a place under the colors. Much confusion and annoyance afterwards resulted from those causes. Under authority of the Acts of Congress referred to, a force of 637,126 men was in the service in the spring of 1862. This, it was thought, would be adequate for the work of suppressing the insurrection. The expenses of the military establishment had risen to appalling proportions, and the ill-advised resolution was taken of putting a stop to volunteer recruiting on the 3rd of April. As the waste of the armies went on without corresponding successes, the error which had been committed was recognized, and recruiting was resumed in June. But before much progress was made, the ill fortune of McClellan in the peninsula, and its unfavorable effect on the public mind, chilled and discouraged recruitment. The necessity for more troops was as evident to the country as to the government. While General McClellan was on his retreat to the James, the governors of the loyal states signed a letter to the president requesting him to issue a call for additional troops and it was in response to this that mr lincoln issued his call on the second of july eighteen sixty two for three hundred thousand volunteers the need of troops continuing and becoming more and more pressing the call for three hundred thousand nine months militia was issued on the fourth of august and in some of the states a draft from the militia was ordered the results of which were not especially satisfactory only about 87,000 of the 300,000 required were reported as obtained in this way, and this number was greatly reduced by desertion before the men could be got out of their respective states. 
in pennsylvania a somewhat serious organization was formed in several counties for resisting the draft general curtin reported several thousand recusants in arms they would not permit the drafted men who were willing to go to their duty to leave their homes and even force them to get out of the railway trains after they had embarked by the prompt and energetic action of the state and national governments working in harmony this disorder was soon suppressed but there as elsewhere the enrollment was inefficient and the results entirely inadequate early in the year eighteen sixty three it became evident that the armies necessary for an effective prosecution of the war could not be filled by volunteering nor by state action alone and a bill for enrolling and calling out the national forces was introduced in the senate in the beginning of february and at once gave rise in that body to a hot discussion it was attacked by the democratic senators who were mostly from the border states with the greatest energy and feeling they contended that it was in direct violation of the constitution and if passed would be subversive to the liberties of the country they were joined by william a richardson who had succeeded mr douglas as senator from illinois and who warned his colleagues that they were plunging the country into civil war the bill was principally defended by henry wilson of massachusetts and jacob colomer of vermont the former laying most stress upon the necessities of the country and the latter characteristically advocating the measure on legal and constitutional grounds the bill passed the senate and came up in the house on the twenty third of february abram b olin who had charge of it announced at the beginning with a somewhat crude candor that he proposed to permit discussion of the merits of the bill for a reasonable time and then to demand a vote upon it he was not willing to hazard the loss of a bill he deemed so important by opening it to propositions for amendment but in spite of this warning perhaps by reason of it an animated discussion at once sprang up and many amendments were offered some in good faith and some with the purpose of nullifying the bill the measure was attacked with great violence the object and purpose of the president was proclaimed by democratic members to be the establishment of an irresponsible despotism and the destruction of constitutional liberty was prophesied as certain in case the bill should pass there was a great difference of tone between the opponents and the supporters of the administration the latter confident in their strength were far more moderate in their expressions than the former but there were reproaches and recriminations on both sides democrats like mr cox of ohio mr biddle of pennsylvania and messrs mallory and wycliffe of kentucky claimed that the anti-slavery measures of the administration were the sole cause of military failure and that if the president would return to constitutional ways the armies would soon be filled by volunteering to which the republicans answered that the secession of volunteering was due to the treasonable speech and conduct of the opposition some unimportant amendments were attached to the bill which was sent back to the senate for concurrence and after another debate scarcely less passionate than the first the amendments of the house were adopted and the measure became law by the approval of the president on the third of march eighteen sixty three this was the first law enacted by congress by which the government of the united states without the intervention of the authorities of the several states appealed directly to the nation to create large armies the act declared that with certain exceptions especially set forth all able-bodied male citizens and persons of foreign birth who had declared their intention to become citizens between the ages of twenty and forty-five should constitute the national forces and empower the president to call them forth by draft all were to be called out if necessary the first call was actually for one-fifth but that was a measure of expediency the act provided for the appointment or detail by the president of a provost-marshal general who was to be the head of a bureau in the war department 
and for dividing the states into districts coinciding with those for the election of congressmen. The District of Columbia and the territories formed additional districts. A provost marshal was authorized for each of these districts, with whom was associated a commissioner and a surgeon. The board thus formed was required to divide its district into as many sub-districts as might be found necessary, to appoint an enrolling officer for each, and to make an enrollment immediately. Colonel James B. Fry, an assistant adjutant general of the Army, who had formerly been chief of staff to General Buell, and who was not only an accomplished soldier, but an executive offer of extraordinary tact, ability, and industry, was made provost marshal general. Officers of the Army, selected for their administrative capacity, were appointed provost marshals for the several states. The enrollment began the latter part of May and was pushed forward with great energy, except in the border states, where there was some difficulty found in selecting the proper boards of enrollment. While there was more or less opposition, General Fry says, it could not be said to be serious. Some of the officers were maltreated and one or two assassinated, but prompt action on the part of the civil authorities, aided when necessary by military patrols, secured the arrest of guilty parties and checked these outrages. Those who attempted to obstruct enrollment officers were promptly punished, and orders from the War Department gave a clear definition of what constituted impediments to the drafts. Not only the assaulting or obstructing of officers was cause for punishment, but even standing mute, and the giving of false names, subjected the offender to summary arrest. In addition to the duties of enrolling all citizens capable of bearing arms, of drafting from these the numbers required for military service, and of arresting deserters and returning them to the army, the provost marshal general was also charged with the entire work of recruiting volunteers. This ensured harmony and systematic action in the two methods of raising troops, and the work was carried on with constantly increasing efficiency and success. A comparatively small number of men was obtained strictly by the draft, but the draft powerfully stimulated enlistments, and the money obtained by commutation furnished an ample fund for all the expenses of the bureaus of recruitment. Improvements in the law and the modes of executing it were constantly made, until at the close of the war the system was probably as perfect as human ingenuity could make it under the peculiar conditions of American life. The result proved the vast military resources of the nation. In April, 1865, with a million soldiers in the field, the enrollment showed that the national forces, not called out, consisted of 2,245,000 more. We quote the aggregates of the successive calls and their results from General Fry's final report. The quotas charged against the states, under all calls made by the President during the four years from the 15th of April, 1861, when his first proclamation echoed the guns at Sumter, to the 14th of April, 1865, when Lincoln was assassinated and recruiting ceased, amounted to 2,759,049, the terms of service varying from three months to three years. The aggregate number of men credited on the several calls and put into service in the Army, Navy, and Marine Corps was 2,690,401. This left a deficiency of 68,000, which would have been readily filled if the war had not closed. In addition to these, some 70,000 emergency men were from first to last called into service. During the progress of the work, an infinite variety of questions arose as to the quotas and the credits of the several states, and the President was overwhelmed by complaints and reclamations from various governors in the North. Even the most loyal supporters of the administration exerted themselves to the utmost to have the demands upon them reduced and their credits for troops furnished 
raised to the highest possible figures, while in those states which were politically under the control of the opposition, these natural importunities were aggravated by what seemed a deliberate intention to frustrate as far as possible the efforts of the government to fill its depleted armies. The most serious controversy that arose during the progress of the enrollment was that begun and carried on by Governor Seymour of New York. So long as the administration of Governor E. D. Morgan lasted, the government received the most zealous and efficient support from the state of New York. It is true that at the close of Governor Morgan's term, the last day of 1862, the Adjutant General reported the state deficient to some 28,000 men and volunteers under the various calls of the government, 18,000 of which deficiency belonged to the city of New York. But in spite of this deficiency, there had never been any lack of cordial cooperation on the part of the state government with that of the nation. In the autumn of that year, however, in the period of doubt and discouragement which existed more or less throughout the Union, General James S. Wadsworth, the Republican candidate for governor, had been defeated after a most acrimonious contest by Horatio Seymour, then, and until his death, the most honored and prominent Democratic politician of the state. He came into power upon a platform denouncing almost every measure which the government had found it necessary to adopt for the suppression of the rebellion, and upon his inauguration, on the first day of 1863, he clearly intimated that his principal duty would be to maintain and defend the sovereignty and jurisdiction of his state. The President, anxious to work in harmony with the governors of all the loyal states, and especially desirous on public grounds to secure the cordial cooperation in war matters of the state administration in New York, had written to Mr. Seymour soon after his inauguration as governor, inviting his confidence and friendship. You and I are substantially strangers, and I write this chiefly that we may become better acquainted. I, for the time being, am at the head of a nation which is in great peril, and you are at the head of the greatest state of that nation. As to maintaining the nation's life and integrity, I assume and believe there cannot be a difference of purpose between you and me. If we should differ as to the means, it is important that such difference should be as small as possible, that it should not be enhanced by unjust suspicions on one side or the other. In the performance of my duty, the cooperation of your state, as that of others, is needed. In fact, it is indispensable. This alone is a sufficient reason why I should wish to be at a good understanding with you. Please write me at least as long a letter as this, of course saying in it just what you think fit. The governor waited three weeks, and then made a cold and guarded reply, retaining in this private communication the attitude of reserve and distrust he had publicly assumed. He said, I have delayed answering your letter for some days with a view of preparing a paper in which I wish to state clearly the aspect of public affairs from the standpoint I occupy. I do not claim any superior wisdom, but I am confident the opinions I hold are entertained by one half of the population of the northern states. I have been prevented from giving my views in the manner I intended by a pressure of official duties, which at the present stage of the legislative session of this state confines me to the executive chamber until each midnight. After the adjournment, which will soon take place, I will give you without reserve my opinions and purposes with regard to the condition of our unhappy country. In the meanwhile, I assure you that no political resentments, or no personal objects, will turn me aside from the pathway I have marked out for myself. I intend to show to those charged with the administration of public affairs a due deference and respect, and to yield them a just and generous support in all measures they may adopt within the scope of their constitutional powers. For the preservation of the Union, I am ready to make any sacrifice of interest, passion, or prejudice. 
This closed the personal correspondence between them. The governor never wrote the promised letter. He did not desire to commit himself to any friendly relations with the president. With the narrowness of a bitterly prejudiced mind, he had given an interpretation to the president's cordial overture as false as it was unfavorable. In an article, published with his sanction many years afterwards, he is represented as expressing his conviction that at the time of this correspondence there was a conspiracy of prominent Republicans to force Lincoln out of the White House, that the President was aware of it, and that this was the cause of the anxiety which he displayed to be on intimate, friendly terms with Mr. Seymour. There could be no intimate understanding between two such men. Mr. Lincoln could no more comprehend the partisan bitterness and suspicion which lay at the basis of Mr. Seymour's character then the latter could appreciate the motives which induced Lincoln to seek his cordial cooperation in public work for the general welfare. He gave the same base interpretation to a complimentary message which Stanton sent him in June 1863, thanking him for the energy with which he had sent forward troops for the defense of Pennsylvania, and when, a year later, Stanton invited him to Washington for a consultation, he refused either to go or to reply to the invitation. Thoreau Weed is quoted as saying in his later years that Mr. Lincoln, after Mr. Seymour's election and before his inauguration, authorized Mr. Weed to say to him that holding his position he could wheel the Democratic Party into line and put down the rebellion, and that if he would render this great service to the country, Mr. Lincoln would cheerfully make way for him as his successor. Mr. Weed says he made this suggestion to Seymour, but that the latter preferred to administer his office as an irreconcilable and conscientious partisan. It is probable that Mr. Weed, as is customary with elderly men, exaggerated the definiteness of the proposition, but these letters show how anxious Lincoln was that Seymour should give a loyal support to the government, and in how friendly and self-effacing a spirit he would have met him. In what must be said in regard to the controversy in which General Seymour soon found himself engaged with the national government, there is no question of his personal integrity or his patriotism. He doubtless considered that he was only doing his duty to his state and his party in opposing almost every specific act of the national government. The key to all his actions in respect to the draft is to be found in his own words. It is believed, he said, by at least one half of the people of the loyal states that the conscription act is in itself a violation of the supreme constitutional law. This belief he heartily shared, and no moral blame attaches to him for trying to give it effect in his official action. His conduct led to disastrous results. His views of government were shown to be mistaken and unsound. The nation went on its triumphant way over all the obstacles interposed by him and those who believed with him, and during the quarter of a century which elapsed before his death, his chief concern was to throw upon the government the blame of his own factious proceedings. He constantly accused the administration of Mr. Lincoln of an unfair and partisan execution of the law, which he regarded in itself as unconstitutional. He assumed that because the enrollment of the arms-bearing population of New York City, which had given a majority for him, showed an excess over the enrollment in the rural districts, which had given a large majority for Wadsworth, that the city was to be punished for being democratic, and the country rewarded for being republican, to which the most natural reply was that the volunteering had been far more active in the republican districts than it had been in the democratic. He attacked all the proceedings of the provost marshals. He accused them of neglect and contumacy toward himself. All these accusations were wholly unfounded. General Fry was a man as nearly without politics as a patriotic American can be. He came of a distinguished democratic family, and during a life passed in the military service his only preoccupation had been the punctual fulfillment of every duty confided to him. 
the district provost marshals for the city of new york were selected with especial care from those recommended by citizens of the highest character in the place three provost marshal generals were appointed for new york and great pains were taken to choose those who would be likely to secure the favor and cooperation of the authorities and the people of new york they were major frederick townsend colonel robert nugent and major a s divin nugent was an irishman a war democrat and divin an intimate acquaintance and personal friend of governor seymour townsend was a well-known resident of albany they were specially charged to put themselves in communication with the governor to acquaint themselves with his views and wishes and to give them due weight in determining the best interests of the government and to endeavor by all means in their power to secure for the execution of the enrollment act the aid and hearty cooperation of the governor state officers and the people a letter was at the same time written to the governor by the provost marshal general commending those officers to him and asking them for his cooperation a similar letter was sent to the mayor of new york city the government exhausted all its powers in endeavoring to command the enrollment to the favorable consideration of the civil officers of the state but governor seymour says general fry gave no assistance in fact so far as the government officers engaged in the enrollment could learn he gave the subject no attention without the aid or countenance of the governor in face of his quiet hostility the enrollment was carried forward as rapidly as possible the work was impeded by numerous and important obstacles the large floating population of the city threw great difficulties in its way opposition was encountered in almost every house the enrollment officers entered where artifice did not succeed violence was sometimes attempted in some places organized bodies of men opposed the enrollment in others secret societies waged a furtive warfare against the officers but in spite of all these drawbacks the enrollment was made with remarkable fairness and substantial success it was no more imperfect than was inevitable and the draft which followed it was conducted in such a manner as to neutralize to a great extent the irregularities and hardships that might have resulted from the errors it contained the enrollment having been completed the orders for drafting in the state of new york were issued on the first of july at that date the draft had been going on for some time in new england colonel nugent was left at liberty if thought expedient to execute the draft in new york city by districts and in one or more at a given time rather than all at once throughout the city governor seymour was notified in almost daily letters from the first to the thirteenth of july of the drafts which had been ordered in the several districts the provost marshal general begged him to do all in his power to enable the officers to complete the drafts promptly effectively fairly and successfully he paid no attention to these requests further than to send his adjutant-general to washington on the eleventh of july for the purpose of urging the suspension of the draft but while this officer was away upon his mission the evil passions excited in the breasts of the lowest class of democrats in new york city by the denunciations of the enrollment act and of the legally constituted authorities who were endeavoring to enforce it broke out in the most terrible riot which this western continent has ever witnessed the state of popular distrust and excitement which naturally arose from the discussion of the enrollment was greatly increased by the vehement utterances of the more violent democratic politicians and newspapers governor seymour in a speech delivered on the fourth of july which was filled with denunciations of the party in power said the democratic organization look upon this administration as hostile to their rights and liberties they look upon their opponents as men who would do them wrong in regard to their most sacred franchises the journal of commerce accused the administration of prolonging the war for its own purposes and added such men are neither more nor less than murderers the world denouncing the weak and reckless men who temporarily administer the federal government 
attacked especially the enrollment bill as an illegal and despotic measure the daily news which reached a larger number of the masses of new york than any other journal quoted governor seymour as saying that neither the president nor congress without the consent of the state authorities had a right to force a single individual against his will to take part in the ungodly conflict which is distracting the land it condemned the manner in which the draft was being executed as an outrage on all decency and fairness the object of it being to kill off democrats and stuff the ballot boxes with bogus soldier votes incendiary handbills in the same sense were distributed through the northern districts of the city thickly populated by laboring men of foreign birth although there had been for several days mutterings of discontent in the streets and even threats uttered against the enrolling officers these demonstrations had been mostly confined to the drinking saloons and no apprehensions of popular tumult were entertained even on saturday morning the eleventh of july when the draft was to begin at the corner of forty-third street and third avenue there was no symptom of disturbance the day passed pleasantly away the draft was carried on regularly and good-humouredly and at night the superintendent of police as he left the office said the rubicon was passed and all would go well but the next day being sunday afforded leisure for the ferment of suspicion and anger every foreigner who was drafted became a centre of sympathy and excitement there were secret meetings in many places on sunday night and on the next morning parties of men went from shop to shop compelling workmen to join them and swell the processions which were moving to the above-mentioned office of the enrollment board the commissioner proceeded quietly with his work the wheel was beginning to turn a few names were called and recorded when suddenly a large paving stone came crashing through the window and landed upon the reporter's table shivering the inkstands and knocking over one or two bystanders and with hardly a moment's interval a volley of stones flew through the windows putting a stop to the proceedings the crowd kindled into fury by its own act speedily became a howling mob the rioters burst through the doors and windows smashing the furniture of the office into splinters sprinkling camphene upon the floor and setting the building on fire when the fire department arrived they found the mob in possession of the hydrants and the building was soon reduced to ashes this furious outburst took the authorities completely by surprise the most trustworthy portion of the organized militia had been ordered to pennsylvania to resist the invasion of general lee there was only a handful of troops in the harbor and the mob having possession of the street railways prevented for a time the rapid concentration of these while the police who were admirable in organization and efficiency being at the time under republican control were of course inadequate to deal during the first hours of the outbreak with an army of excited and ignorant men recruited in an instant from hundreds of workshops and excited by drink and passionate declamation the agitation and disorder spread so rapidly that the upper part of the city was in a few hours in full possession of the maddened crowd the majority of them filled with that aimless thirst for destruction which rises so naturally in a mob when the restraints of order are withdrawn they were led by wild zealots excited by political hates and fears or by common thieves who found in the tumult their opportunity for plunder by three o'clock in the afternoon the body of rioters in the upper part of the city numbered several thousand their first fury was naturally directed against the enrolling offices after the destruction of the building in the ninth district they attacked the block of stores in which the enrolling office of the eighth district stood the adjoining shops were filled with jewelry and other costly goods and were speedily swept clean by the thievish hands of the rioters and then set on fire here as before the firemen were not permitted to play on the flames 
but the political animus of the mob was shown most clearly by the brutal and cowardly outrages inflicted upon negroes they dashed with the merriment of fiends on every colored face they saw taking special delight in the maiming and murdering of women and children late in the afternoon of the thirteenth the mob made a rush for the fine building of the colored orphan asylum this estimable charity was founded and carried on by a society of kind-hearted ladies it gave not only shelter but instruction and christian training to several hundred colored orphans a force of policemen was hastily gathered together but could only defend the asylum for a few minutes giving time for the inmates to escape the policemen were then disabled by the brutal mob who rushed into the building stealing everything which was portable and then setting the house on fire they burned the residences of several government officers and a large hotel which refused them liquor for three days these horrible scenes of unchained fury and hatred lasted an attack upon the new york tribune office was a further evidence of the political passion of the mob headed at this point by a lame secessionist barber who had just before been heard to express the hope that he might soon shave jeff davis in new york and who led on the rioters with loud cheers for general mcclellan but after dismantling the counting-room they were attacked and driven away by the police colonel h t o'brien having sprained his ankle while gallantly resisting the mob stepped into a drug store for assistance while his detachment passed on the druggist fearing the rioters begged o'brien to leave his shop and the brave soldier went out among the howling crowd in a moment they were upon him and beat and trampled him into unconsciousness for several hours the savages dragged the still breathing body of their own countrymen up and down the streets inflicting every indignity upon his helpless form and then shouting and yelling conveyed him to his own door there a courageous priest sought to subdue their savagery by reading the last offices for the dying over the unfortunate colonel the climax of horror was reached by the brutal ruffians jostling the priest aside and closing the ceremonies by dancing upon the corpse from beginning to end they showed little courage they were composed for the greater part of the most degraded classes of foreigners and as a rule they made no stand when attacked either by the police or the military in any number the only exception to this rule was in the case of a squad of marines who foolishly fired into the air when confronting the rioters a company of fifty regulars was able to work its will against thousands of them the city government the trusty and courageous police force and the troops in the harbor at last came into harmonious action and gradually established order throughout the city the state government was of little avail from beginning to end of the disturbance governor seymour having done all he could to embarrass the government and rouse the people against it had left the city on the eleventh and gone to long branch in new jersey on the receipt of the frightful news of the thirteenth he returned to the city a prey to the most terrible agitation he was hurried by his friends to the city hall where a great crowd soon gathered and there in sight of the besieged tribune office he made the memorable address the discredit of which justly clung to him all his days his terror and his sympathy with the mob in conflict with his convictions of public duty completely unmanned him he addressed the rioters in affectionate tones as his friends and assured them that he had come to show them a test of his friendship he informed them that he had sent his adjutant to washington to confer with the authorities there and to have the draft suspended this assurance was received with the most vociferous cheers he urged them to act as good citizens leaving their interests to him wait until my adjutant returns from washington he said and you shall be satisfied the words in this extraordinary speech for which the governor was mostly blamed were those in which he addressed the mob as his friends but this was a venial fault pardonable in view of his extreme agitation the serious matter was his intimation that the draft justified the riot 
and that if rioters would cease from their violence the draft would be stopped he issued two proclamations on the fourteenth one mildly condemning the riot and calling upon the persons engaged in it to retire to their homes and employments and another somewhat sterner in tone declaring the city and county of new york to be in a state of insurrection and warning all who might resist the state authorities of their liability to the penalties prescribed by law it is questionable if the rioters ever heard of the proclamations and if they did the effect of these official utterances was entirely nullified by the governor's sympathetic speeches the riots came to a bloody close on the night of thursday the fourth a small detachment of soldiers met the principal body of rioters in third avenue and twenty-first street killed thirteen and wounded eighteen more taking some dozens of prisoners the fire of passion had burned itself out by this time and the tired mob now thoroughly dominated slunk away to its hiding places during that night and the next day the militia were returning from pennsylvania several regiments of veterans arrived from the army of the potomac and the peace of the city was once more secured the rioters had kept the city in terror for four days and had destroyed two millions of property for several days afterwards arrests went on and many of the wounded lawbreakers died in their retreats afraid to call for assistance there were disturbances more or less serious in other places which were speedily put down by the local authorities but as mr greeley says in no single instance was there a riot incited by drafting wherein americans by birth bore any considerable part nor in which the great body of the actors were not born europeans and generally of recent importation the part taken by archbishop hughes in this occurrence gave rise to various commentaries he placarded about the city on the sixteenth of july an address to the men of new york who are now called in many papers rioters inviting them to come to his house and let him talk to them assuring them of immunity from the police in going and coming you who are catholics the address concluded or as many of you as are have a right to visit your bishop without molestation on the seventeenth at two o'clock a crowd of four or five thousand persons assembled in front of the archbishop's residence and the venerable prelate clad in his purple robes and full canonical attire appeared at the window and made a strange speech to the mob half jocular and half earnest alternately pleading cajoling and warning them he told them that he did not see a riotous face among them he did not accuse them of having done anything wrong he said that every man had a right to defend his house or his shanty at the risk of his life that they had no cause to complain as irishmen and catholics against the government and affectionately suggested whether it might not be better for them to retire to their homes and keep out of danger he begged them to be quiet in the name of ireland ireland that never committed a single act of cruelty until she was oppressed ireland that has been the mother of heroes and poets but never the mother of cowards the crowd greeted his speech with uproarious applause and quietly dispersed the number of those who lost their lives during the riots has never been ascertained the mortality statistics for that week and the week succeeding show an increase of five or six hundred over the average governor seymour estimated the number killed and wounded at one thousand others placed it much higher naturally in such days of terror and anger there were not wanting those who asserted that the riots were the result and the manifestation of a widespread treasonable conspiracy involving leading democrats at the north the president received many letters to this effect one relating the alleged confession of a well-known politician who overcome with agitation and remorse had in the presence of the editors of the tribune divulged the complicity of seymour and others in the preparation of the emuet but he placed no reliance upon the story and there was in fact no foundation for it 
with all his desire to injure the administration governor seymour had not the material of an insurrectionist in his composition and when the riot came his excitement and horror were the best proof that he had not expected it the scenes of violence in new york were not repeated anywhere else if we accept a disturbance at boston which for a time threatened to become serious but it was put down by the prompt and united action of the civil and military authorities but the ferment of opposition was so general as to give great disquietude to many friends of the government throughout the country leading unionists in philadelphia fearing a riot there besought the president by mail and telegraph to stop the draft in chicago a similar appeal was made and by recruitment and volunteering the necessity of a draft was avoided in illinois until the next year no provision of the enrollment law excited such ardent opposition as that which was introduced for the purpose of mitigating its rigors the provision exempting drafted men from service upon payment of three hundred dollars the rich man's money against the poor man's blood was a cry from which no demagogue could refrain and it was this which contributed most powerfully to rouse the unthinking masses against the draft the money paper exemptions was used under the direction of the provost marshal general for the raising of recruits and the payment of expenses of the draft it amounted to a very large sum to twenty-six millions of dollars after all expenses were paid there was a remainder of nine millions left to the credit of that bureau in the treasury of the united states the exemption fund was swelled by the action of county and municipal authorities especially by those of new york who in the flurry succeeding the riots passed in great haste an ordinance to pay the commutation for drafted men of the poorer classes a certain impetus was given to volunteering also but the money came in faster than the men and in june eighteen sixty four the provost marshal general reported that out of some fourteen thousand drafted men seven thousand were exempted for various reasons and five thousand paid money for commutation this statement was sent to congress by the president with the recommendation that the commutation clause be repealed this was done after a hot discussion which exhibited a curious change of front on the question willard salisbury richard a richardson and other democrats energetically opposing the repeal and making it the occasion of as bitter attacks on the administration as those which had been for a year directed against the law it may not be without interest to look for a moment at the measures pursued by the confederate authorities to raise and maintain their army there is a striking contrast between methods and results on either side of the line the methods of the confederates were far more prompt and more rigorous than those of the national government while the results attained were so much less satisfactory that their failure in this respect brought about the final catastrophe of their enterprise they began the war with forces greatly superior in numbers to those of the union before the attack on fort sumter their congress had authorized the raising of an army of one hundred thousand men and mr davis had called into service thirty six thousand nine hundred men more than twice the army of the united states and immediately after beginning hostilities he called for thirty two thousand more on the eighth of may the confederate congress gave mr davis almost unlimited power to accept the services of volunteers without regard to place of enlistment and a few days later he was relieved by statute of the delays and limitations of formal calls and all power of appointment to commissions was placed in his hand so that while from the beginning to the end the most punctilious respect was paid by the national executive and legislature to the rights of the loyal states in the matter of recruitment the states which had succeeded on the pretext of preserving their autonomy speedily gave themselves into the hands of a military dictator in december eighteen sixty one the term of enlistment was changed from one to three years the pitiful bounty of fifty dollars being given as compensation during all that winter recruiting languished and several statutes continually increasing in severity were passed with little effect 
and on the sixteenth of april eighteen sixty two the confederate congress passed a sweeping measure of universal conscription authorizing the president to call and place in the military service for three years unless the war should end sooner all white men who are residents of the confederate states between the ages of eighteen and thirty-five years not legally exempt from service and arbitrarily lengthening to three years the terms of those already enlisted a law so stringent was of course impossible of perfect execution under the clamor and panic of their constituencies the confederate congress passed repealed and modified various schemes of exemption intended to permit the ordinary routine of civil life to pursue its course but great confusion and heart-burnings arose from every effort which was made to ease the workings of the inexorable machine the question of overseers of plantations was one especially difficult to treat the law of the eleventh of october eighteen sixty two exempted one man for every plantation of twenty negroes this system was further extended from time to time but owners of slaves were obliged to pay five hundred dollars a year for each exemption by one statute it was provided that on plantations where these exemptions were granted the exemption paid two hundred pounds of meat for every able-bodied slave on the plantation gradually all exemptions as of right were legislated away and the whole subject was left to the discretion of the executive which vastly increased his power and his unpopularity it finally rested upon him to say how many editors ministers railroad engineers and expressmen were absolutely required to keep up the current life in the business of the country the limit of age was constantly extended in september eighteen sixty two an act of the confederate congress authorized the president to call into service all white men resident in the confederate states between the ages of eighteen and forty five in february eighteen sixty four another law included all between seventeen and fifty which gave occasion to grant for his celebrated mot afterwards credited him by general butler that the confederates were robbing both the cradle and the grave to fill their armies severe and drastic as were these laws and unrelenting as was the insurrectionary government in their execution they were not carried out with anything like the system and thoroughness which characterized the actions of the national authorities the confederate generals were constantly complaining that they got no recruits or not enough to supply the waste of campaigns on the thirtieth of april eighteen sixty four the chief of the bureau of conscription at richmond made a report to the secretary of war painting in the darkest colors the difficulties encountered by him in getting soldiers into the ranks though he had all the laws and regulations he needed and there were men enough in the country he said and in these words confessed that the system had failed and that the defeat of the revolt was now but a question of time the results indicate this grave consideration for the government that fresh material for the armies can no longer be estimated as an element of future calculation for their increase and that necessity demands the invention of devices for keeping in the ranks the men now born on the rolls the stern revocation of all details an appeal to the patriotism of the states claiming large numbers of able-bodied men and the accretions by age are now almost the only unexhausted sources of supply for conscription from the general population the functions of this bureau may cease with the termination of the year eighteen sixty four end of chapter one